0: hi everyone episode 14 and i'm so excited to be back took a break from easter kyle's not back yet um hopefully he'll be back maybe in the next couple weeks. I have no idea to be honest. He's busy with his second kid and that's totally cool. But in the meantime, I'm gonna continue having guests. We've had a couple of great guests so far and I'm really excited for the next next person who's on our screen right now, Dr. Scarlett Cooper. And she's Hi. a licensed, licensed naturopathic doctor mm-hmm. who practices out of BC in Canada. She studied nutritional sciences at the University of British Columbia and then she graduated from the Canadian College of Naturopathic Medicine. She has a particular interest in children's health, which is really going to be the focus of our conversation today, hormone balancing, stress, and weight management, along with conditions affecting our digestion, our thyroid, and the skin. So I'm really excited to have her. Uh, She's not only an exceptional naturopathic doctor, she's also one of the kindest people that Michelle and I know. She's also one of the smartest people that we know. And her kindness, just to give you an example of her kindness, she has visited us, three times, I believe in (laughs) winter in Edmonton. So that shows dedication to friendship. So I'm really honored and pleased to have uh, Dr. Scarlett Cooper. I'm just going to call you Scarlett though. I don't know if I can call you Dr. Cooper that unless you really want me to Scarlett, but um, (laughs) but I think I'm just going to have to keep calling. I'm going to have to call you Scarlett, but welcome to Two Nobodies. I'm really excited to have you. Um, I know that you have listened to our podcast and I'm really thankful for that, Um, but I'm glad to have you as a guest.
1: Yeah. Stoked to be here. And you can call me whatever you want. People call (laughs) me Scarlett. I have some pediatric patients that call me Dr. Scarlett, which is kind of cute. Lots of Dr. Cooper, for sure. It doesn't matter. I'm pretty easygoing. Yeah. Yeah.
0: (laughs) Well, uh, first of all, how has the pandemic been for you this past year?
1: Honestly, the pandemic for me, in the very beginning, I think, and probably for everyone, It was really tough because it was a shock and we just didn't know what was going on and and whatnot but i have to say like since um since our clinic was able to reopen essentially everything has just gotten better um business is really busy i do a lot of work virtually some in person of course but definitely a lot virtually um and for me it actually allowed me to move outside of the city so i actually Mm -hmm. rather than living necessarily quite as close to my clinic living a little bit farther outside of the city it's just a very very peaceful sort of lifestyle and i don't mind the commute in because i don't have to do it quite as often so for me in a lot of ways it has actually i think um, been, been really, really nice. And there's still some really tough times in terms of like missing family and missing friends, of course. And that even goes in waves a little as well. Like even over the winter, there are definitely some times where, you know, you feel lonely and that sort of thing. But, um, I have a ton of support, really amazing close friends and family and, and everything. And I just, um, yeah, I couldn't, uh, I, I feel like I have nothing to complain about. (laughs)
0: Have you, have you noticed, and I don't know if this is uh, true about yourself, but I've talked to other folks about this, that there's almost uh, – people are kind of either going one of two ways. You're seeing people kind of really develop and focus on themselves and do a lot of reflection and, and using this time as a period of incredible growth. But at the same time, you're also you know seeing people on the opposite side. Where would you say – it sounds like you maybe are focused on sort of – you've been focusing on yourself. Would that be fair to say or –
1: I would say so. Yeah. Um, I think a big focus for me is just kind of feeling like I'm just getting my life together. I think especially given like the age and stage of life that I'm at, just wanting to really mm. set that foundation for the future and building a family and being able to support a supportive family and all those kinds of things. So it's kind of like this is the time to be doing that and sort of buckling down and, and just really, you know, I'm hopeful to be able to provide a really you know, beautiful life for my kids one day, the way my parents did for me, and so that's definitely kind of always in the back of my mind with everything that that I'm doing.
0: What are you noticing from your patients
1: um, in regard to like which way they're going? Yeah, like just, what's yeah. The,
0: what, are people showing up in a very generally more positive light, or are people are you getting a mix, or what is that yeah. looking like?
1: I'd say like definitely a mix. I mean, there are people who are terrified and just sort of staying at home all of the time, even beyond right. you know what the regulations are and, and things like that. And then there's people who just don't feel that worried about it. And they're just like, yeah, they're just not quite as sort of scared about it. They're sort of going with the flow. There's some people whose businesses have absolutely flourished during this. And there's some people who have um, have really taken a hit or lost their jobs and their livelihood. Um, you know, now that you mentioned, I'm sure there's people who just simply haven't been able to come back because sure. of maybe, who knows, right? They lost their job. They lost their benefits or, or their financial situation changed or... Who knows, right? Um, so I'd say it's generally quite a big mix, but I've definitely seen a lot, I have seen a lot of positivity and I'm not sure if that's just people making the choice to you know, look at the positive things like in terms of spending more time with their family and, and whatnot. But I've also definitely seen some people who are just very burned out by the whole thing, mm-hmm. very frustrated, very tired, like kids at home all the time, trying to homeschool them, just like huge life change, right? So yeah, it's, it's tough. I, I think it's a big mix to try to answer your question.
0: And well, so we're going to be talking a lot about eating today. And so I'm curious, though, have you seen people's eating habits changed during the pandemic?
1: That is such a good question. Um, yes, absolutely. So at the start of all of this, and I think it probably still somewhat holds true, I was starting to notice that almost all of my patients had probably, because I some of them I didn't even see, right? Or, or even really hear from for those first, we were close for two and a half months mm. um, before I could see patients in person again. And it was really, really common that there had been some weight gain, I'd say anywhere mm. from two to 20 pounds. Um, for each person. There was the odd person who maybe either maintained or even like got more fit during any kind of, you know, lockdown Mm or anything like that because they just really focused on exercise and taking care of themselves. But I I wouldn't say that was the norm. I'd say it was much, much more common that people were um, sort of like letting good habits slide and um, maybe not being quite as active or else um, just eating comfort food was a big one. Baking was a big one, just kind of not putting quite as much attention on, on things like that, which Honestly, it sort of makes sense when people are sort of told to stay stay inside and and whatnot. You know, they'll find ways to pass the time, and for a lot of people, well, that not you're loo-
0: oh. losing that socialization, yeah. Too, right which is huge.
1: Absolutely. And I've even thought about that in regard to, I mean, I'm sh- it depends. People, different people have different living situation, right? Do they live alone with one other person, big family, whatnot? But a big part of food and sharing is is sharing food, right? So, right. you know, to share a meal with loved ones, whether that's extended family, you know, family gathering or holiday at a restaurant. There's so much community and connection when it comes to sitting and sharing food mm. um, that I think that's a big part that a lot of us are missing right now
0: yeah we did that episode on on Huga right and yes. I we, you know it's I think that's exactly sort of what they're talking about is just the the community benefit and being able to socialize and that really brings family together and brings yeah. friends together and how healing that could be for people and so um it's just it's it's terrible even if you're with the same three or four people though you kind of get sick of those people too <laughs> right? and you you want to move on um no I, I think that's that's really interesting to hear I, I am curious though from the, you know, I've known you for some time, but I actually don't know how you got started in wanting to learn about nutrition. Like, where does that come from? I absolutely, I mean, I know a little bit about your upbringing, uh, and how your family was very sort of health conscious and you ate always very good food and, (laughs) and that sort of thing, but where the interest to actually go and study nutrition come from?
1: Yeah, I mean, I can try and put my finger on that, but I think a big part of it does simply come from my upbringing. So basically I was raised in a family where um, my parents put a, a huge importance on healthy eating, healthy living, all of that to the point where it was, it was even our family's livelihood. My dad had a business um, that essentially sold books on natural health. And okay. um, you know, it was very much a family business. He started it. Like my mom would help him out at it. My sister and I had jobs at it when we were young up until like our early twenties. Um, you know, it was very much just like part of our our lifestyle. We very much, I think, practiced what we preached in that regard. Mm. And it was just to me it was it was really normal. And I don't think it was until I um, got a little bit older and started making more connections with kids at school and realizing like, oh, my family's really quite different actually in a lot of mm. ways. You know, like we would see naturopathic doctors and we would, um, you know, we would we would reach for like natural remedies and things like that as our as our go-to and um, just the way we ate, the types of food we ate and whatnot. I mean, I think things like that are becoming much more probably mainstream now, but certainly when I was really young, they were not necessarily very mainstream. So for me it was always just that was the way things were and I didn't really feel like deprived or anything. That was just the way our family was, the way we ate, whatever. And I, I liked the taste of the food that was on the table. I didn't feel, you know, I was like I was being, you know, withheld from from good in food or anything <laughs> like that. I definitely appreciated, you know, going to a friend's house and having these foods I'd never really had before. It was a right. treat, but I still liked the things that we were eating at home. And so that was just always, I was just, I liked cooking. I liked being in the kitchen with my mom. Mm-hmm. I loved grocery shopping. It was fun. I just, I always really liked food. And then, um, it wasn't till high school that I was kind of starting to think about, well, what am I going to do after high school? And lots of different ideas. I was dancing a lot of ballet at that time. And I thought, well, I, like, I could, you know, kind of go that way and pursue that as a career path. But did I really want to? Was that like my passion? Mm-hmm. And, and I, it kind of just came to the conclusion that my real passion was, helping people and talking to people and and working with people. And I started putting the pieces together and realized, I remember the realization, oh, my goodness, I can go to UBC and study nutritional science and earn a Bachelor of Science. Like, that's amazing. I can actually get a degree out of that. So that's where I started. And I do remember looking at CCNM's website, even in high school, and looking at it thinking, oh, my goodness, you need a whole undergraduate degree before you can even go there. Like, Forget it. Like it just seemed like an eternity away, right? <laughs> but honestly, undergrad flew by. And toward the end of undergrad, I had a few things going on with my own health that I saw a naturopathic doctor for. He was so incredibly helpful for me. I feel like he really, really treated me as the whole person, you know, kind of like mind, body, spirit, the whole, mm-hmm. the whole thing. Mm-hmm. And I loved that so much. I thought, I want to be able to do that for people. And it just it made sense to me that there was, of course, like nutrition was so important, but I felt like there was more that I could learn. I felt like I was just kind of, kind of touching the tip of the iceberg there, and there was more to health oh, okay. than nutrition, and I just wanted to go deeper. So between my own experiences there with my own health, the fact that I was four years into post secondary education and felt like I could do more, I had more in me, I didn't feel burned out. Mm. Um, that's when I started looking into naturopathic college, and yeah, I, I applied and I felt I felt like. everything just happened so easily and it's probably because I was pursuing the right path. It was, yeah, it was very natural.
0: Did you ever find your education um, maybe didn't align very well with sort of how you were brought up or, or sort of what you learned? Or was it always kind of congruent and it felt very seamless and.
1: It was fairly congruent. I mean, obviously the way I was brought up was more with like good nutrition and um, various like natural remedies and that sort mm-hmm. of thing. I wasn't necessarily like so I think some of the things that we learned at CCNM at naturopathic college, they went beyond what I would have even imagined, like in terms okay. of learning so much more detail in regards to like science and pathology and um, diagnosing and physical exam and whatnot. Sure. It was so, so much more in depth. Like, I mean, it was amazing to be able to integrate all of that with the naturopathic treatment modalities as well. Um, certainly I'd never had any exposure to acupuncture. I, to be quite frank, I thought it was a bunch of hooey when I first got to CCNM <laughs> and then I had some really positive experiences and I thought, well, this makes sense. And it, it right. was, and now it's one of my favorite things. So, yeah. you know, sometimes you just need a little a little experience to sort of <laughs> I have yet to get
0: full acupuncture done.
1: Really? Yes.
0: I, I don't know. It's just um, I think I prioritize uh, massage therapy and it's a hard thing yes. for me to kind of let go of. And so yeah. uh, part of it is like the benefits thing, I guess, and sort of prioritizing that and where I want to allocate that money. But but yep. I absolutely do want to. Um, I think I just have to be in the right, right headspace for it because I think I... I think I would maybe would have an expectation as to what it might lead to, and I mm-hmm. think if something didn't happen over one or two sessions, I probably would be disappointed. But obviously, you know, my wife um, she speaks highly of uh, acupuncture, and she's seen so many great results, and and other people have as well. So I'm not yeah. not poo pooing it, but it just <laughs> I, I haven't I haven't experienced it myself though.
1: Acupuncture is a tricky one. You know, some people will notice something immediately and some people take six, eight sessions to start noticing improvement. I think it depends a lot on how kind of acute or chronic their condition might be. Um, Gosh, it probably depends on a bunch of different factors. But one thing that I really love about naturopathic medicine is that um, you know, when we treat our patients, we're very seldom doing just one treatment at a time. Like we're mm. often complimentary, pardon me, using complementary therapies. So maybe mm. acupuncture, but also nutrition or counseling or herbs or whatnot. Right. I know like Michelle, for example, does a lot of injections, which can really yeah. be helpful for people. Like we're very often doing multiple things at the same time. And I think that can certainly accelerate healing as well. So, yeah.
0: So is that, is that, would you say the difference between seeing a naturopathic doctor for acupuncture versus going to an acupuncturist is that, that you be... maybe just have more tools in the belt or does this the mm. approach differ like i always kind of wondered like do you guys do the same kind of acupuncture like wouldn't i just want to go to an acupuncturist for that like that part i'm actually not very clear on
1: yeah. Honestly, it's a really good question. It comes up a lot. We have a really fantastic acupuncturist at our clinic as well. He's he's fantastic. I actually do refer a lot of patients to him, mostly because uh, of kind of what you were saying earlier about the benefits. People will have benefits to see an naturopathic doctor and separate mm. benefits to see an acupuncturist. And of course, they want to use up their benefits and if they you know we do spend time doing a lot of acupuncture they're going to run out with me a lot sooner so i'm fine Mm -hmm. with that i love the way he practices and i'm very happy to refer patients to him and kind of work with him but i also absolutely see you know you do acupuncture on my own patients as well in regard to our training i mean at the end of the day we do learn the same like traditional chinese medicine philosophy and acupuncture points and and whatnot um So, the yeah, the philosophy that we learn is the same. The points are the same. I think at the end of the day, each practitioner chooses to practice a little differently. And I would honestly think it comes more down to what what particular practitioner you want to see, who you feel a better maybe connection with. Um, but right. to answer your question, absolutely, yes, naturopathic doctors do have training beyond acupuncture, right? Like it's one of the modalities that we learn, but we also learn, you know, nutrition and herbal medicine and homeopathy and hydrotherapy and counseling and sure. and then all the, you know, more medical side of things as well in terms of diagnosis and physical exams. So, yeah. Um, yeah, does that answer your question? Yeah, it does.
0: Yeah. No, I think I, I, that, that that makes sense to me. So when you think about nutrition, then specifically, um, we want to. I wanted to talk about children's uh, children's health and, and nutrition. I mean, uh, you you obviously know, got a young daughter. Kyle's got a young kid, too now, yeah. and so this is sort of top of mind. We talk about this. Kyle and I talk about this all the time. Sort of like, how do you get your kids to not be picky eaters, and and which foods are matter the most, and. And all sorts of things, and I know this can be a very confusing and, and sometimes contentious subject uh, if you're just looking on the internet or trying to find you know what's the best advice, but what is what are the main issues that come to you when it comes to, when it comes to children's health and nutrition like what do you see often
1: yeah, well, definitely the picky eating thing um, some parents will kind of come in and say you know my, my or I'll just see it because i get talking to them or they fill out a diet diary and just see what the child is eating. And um, with the pickiness, often the, and then there's, of course, some concern about nutritional deficiencies. Like, well, my kid's only eating you know, pizza and ice cream, kind of an extreme example, but it happens. Um, you know, could they, are they going to be deficient in certain things? And the answer is yeah, probably yes. So, um, that's a big one for sure. And like the picky eating thing, we can definitely talk about like strategies for that and, and the, why it happens and how to try and prevent it and how to try to deal with it. If it's already come up, like there's a, that's a really awesome topic we can chat about, but definitely, yes, that's, that's a main reason why someone might bring, um, a child in, but I'd say maybe even more common because some parents don't necessarily recognize like how kind of um, essentially restricted the child's diet is just because they are picky. And I think Mm. that that might be partly just due to the way our society is. Like for an example, menus at restaurants, they'll often have a kid's menu and what's on there, chicken strips, macaroni and cheese, like, you know, things that are, they're called like kid friendly just, and all that really means is that the kid is probably going to eat it without giving you a hard time. But are they, are they nutritious meals? Are they good choices? they're not the best but I it mean, prevents
0: your prevents your kid from crying when you're going out for supper <laughs> probably
1: no meltdown in the restaurant yeah um yeah and so i think that's something that's kind of a big misconception i think and um, you know, that, that kids have to eat kid food. Well, no, kids are kids are going to grow into adults. Like they should really mm-hmm. be eating the same as their parents are eating, but perhaps in smaller portions and that sort of thing. But and maybe like less spice and you know that sort of thing. But at the end of the day, they should be eating the same types of sort of foods and food groups that their parents are eating. Um, so anyway, on that regard and other things that yeah, people come in for, they don't necessarily always realize that the diet is a problem, although I'd say these days more and more people do and they will come in saying, I'm wondering about food sensitivities, can we talk about that? Mm. And, and they say, well, why do you think your child might have a food sensitivity? And it's often one of a few different things. I would say skin conditions are very, very common. Lots of different skin conditions, just irritated skin, eczema, that kind of thing, very, very common, sometimes hives, itchiness, just general discomfort. Um, a lot of kids as well are just, they don't have the energy they should. Kids should be quite vital and have a lot of energy. If a kid's mm. tired, Something's wrong. And obviously a lot of different things could be, you know, in the problem here, anything from a food sensitivity to a nutritional deficiency to a very serious, you know, health condition. Um, But that's a big one for sure. The fatigue and then digestion, lots of digestive stuff. So many kids are just honestly, most commonly, probably what I see is just very constipated. Kids are just backed Mm. up. And whether that's, they're just not getting enough fiber, they're not drinking enough water, they have a food sensitivity, you know, a number of different things that need to be tweaked there in the diet, um, most commonly, Um, or, you know, there can, there can be more going on, which again, we can, we can chat more about in regard to gut health, um, that might be coming up, but, uh, but those for sure. And then one other one, which actually ties into food sensitivities is that they might suspect already that their child doesn't do well with milk, you know, maybe lactose intolerant or something like that. But then they're very, very concerned. How is my child going to get enough calcium? How, like, mm. what about their bone health? Like, what's going on there? Do I need to be worried about this? And that one I've counseled on so many times, I don't even bat an eye at it anymore. There's so many things that we can do for bone health be- besides milk, and of course we can talk about that too. Um, so, but, like, what what yes. are
0: the, what are the worries that a parent might have? Like, let's say I don't know at the age of two to four. Like, what's what's something that they they typically come in with? And like, what would you say is sort of very key for that, let's just say that stage of development. Like Avina is three years old. What's something that we would have to really think about for, you know, for her brain development or talk about digestion. And so I'm assuming like those kind of issues really could have effect on their gut health and that sort of thing. So what are, what are some of the things that people come to talk to you about or what would you sort of say is, are some important considerations?
1: Well, a two year old, um, you know, by the age of two, that child has, most likely been completely weaned from breast milk by then, or if they were Mm -hmm. even ever breastfed at all. Right. They're likely onto fully solid foods now. Um, so at that age, like most of the concern is just how did the, how did all those food introductions go? Right. Like, were there any foods that came up that caused the child problems or like what has come up? And that's just doing a full inventory again of like digestion and skin and energy and sleep and all the sort of systems, you know, there in the body. Um, but i'd say at that age between two to four it's more to do with picky eating and food sensitivities than Mm. anything because i hear (laughs) you yeah yeah for sure even in some of the kids that are like fed really well and disciplined well and like whatever right like some stuff can still come up and that's simply honestly there's biological reasons for that kids do taste things differently than adults do Mm.
0: um i didn't know that
1: yeah so like kids there's so much interesting stuff into this. I feel like I'm going to go in four directions, but I'll try and bring it all back together. Um, So it actually starts in pregnancy. So whatever mom eats while she is pregnant and breastfeeding, baby gets exposed to those flavors. So Mm. if mom eats like a lot of vegetables and things that taste bitter and whatnot, baby is much more likely to be accepting of those flavors. When baby starts being you know being eating being introduced um to to whole you know solid foods and it tends to go more smoothly so that's kind of one thing that you know a mom can do right from the time she gets pregnant to make sure her diet is very diverse lots Mm -hmm. of fruits and veggies not just eating you know necessarily like and it's tough, too, because, again, that's a whole, there could be a whole other podcast. Um, but, you know, some women are really sick during the pregnancy. They find it hard to keep certain things down, and they end sure. up loading off of, like, crackers and things, right? So it can be very challenging. But ideally, their diet is very varied and has more of the bitter tastes and things than baby is exposed to those. And when it comes time to feed baby a, a solid food, they're less likely. They might still spit it out once or twice. It's pretty common. Um, but they're more likely to more quickly get used to those flavors and be accepting of them and even as an adult as a kid and as an adult they're more likely then to be more comfortable with a wide variety of foods and flavors
0: do we know like at what stage of pregnancy you know they'll like so for example like you said um, some women won't be able to hold down certain foods but during certain stages of pregnancy that might change yeah like is there is there almost is there almost a place in the pregnancy where it's like, okay, I wasn't able to eat, I don't know, spicy food in in the first trimester. And so therefore I'm going to make up for in this third trimester. And like, do we know that kind of yeah. level of detail? You know,
1: I don't know if I know that level of detail. I think right. at the end of the day, you know, if, uh, a- this is like I said a whole other topic but usually it's if a woman is going to be you know nauseous and unwell in her in her pregnancy it's most commonly in the first trimester unless she Mm. has a more severe case and that's a whole other thing Um, but it's usually in that first trimester and there are certain strategies that we can use both dietary strategies and um, different herbs and supplements and things to help nausea sort of abate in that first trimester but after that assuming the nausea subsides which it very often does then I would just really be focusing on those next two trimesters trying to make sure that diet is diverse as possible. I don't really know beyond beyond yeah. that.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So when you, so coming back to okay, their flavors and their tastes really come back to when, you know, they're in the womb sort of th- sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And so now they're 2 to 4 and some of those tastes are biological. Okay. But what about these sort of there's got to be some key vitamins or essential nutrients that they really have to have like how do how do parents deal with that like are there certain key ones that you're like they they really must get those things
1: right of course and you were asking too about just like brain health and all that sort of thing yeah right? so yeah. i mean so yeah if
0: you just thought about brain like for instance what yeah. would be what would be the most important things for yeah. people to eat
1: Yeah. Okay. So just from a simply a diet perspective, because we can talk from a supplemental perspective as well, but, but generally from a diet perspective, when we're talking about brain health, there's a lot of things, but I think the one that like is probably most common, most important that we hear the most about is essential fatty acids, particularly Mm -hmm. omega-3. So Mm -hmm. that's coming from fish essentially is the richest source. There are some vegetarian sources as well, like flax, chia, um, flaxseed oil, um, different, yeah, seeds and nuts. And Have you happened. heard
0: of algae? algae yeah.
1: Oil? Yeah. That's actually the next one I was going to say. There's also, <laughs> yep. There is a, like a vegan source of, um, so the, the type of fish oil, basically omega-3, there's two key omega-3s that we're talking about when we talk about fish oil, there's EPA and DHA mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and, um, EPA, and you can find them both in fish in, Black seed, for example, those levels are not very high, but the body can kind of like make the EPA and DHA out of the precursors. So just not as
0: efficient as fish Not as
1: efficient. It's actually not nearly as efficient, but it's better than better than nothing. Absolutely. Okay. And then an algae oil is particularly rich in DHA. So mm. the, it would be an acceptable alternative for a child who either is unwilling or unable or whatever to consume fish to have an algae oil supplement. There are products out there. They're like, they kind of advertise as like vegetarian omega-3s and yeah, algae oil can be a fairly potent source. Is it mm. DHA
0: that's more important for brain and EPA is yes. the heart?
1: Uh, so DHA is definitely more important for brain health. Um, and so that's why we particularly focus on that for women in pregnancy, as, as well as breastfeeding, but also for baby. Um, when Once baby is born, that, that's more the DHA. EPA has a lot more, I'd say, especially those higher dose EPA supplements. They're more so focused for like, It's funny because it's still you would think like brain and all that, but like mood, mood and mental health concerns, often depression and that sort of thing, EPA, but also EPA is quite anti-inflammatory, but I like a balance between EPA and DHA if I'm dealing with inflammation. So Hmm. they're both really valuable. I think we just focus on maybe slightly higher doses of DHA at those developmental stages when the brain's developing and then more of a balanced EPA, DHA most of the time.
0: This is off topic, but have you seen this new documentary on Netflix called Seaspiracy?
1: i've heard about it it's i have like heard it, about it i haven't watched it yet have you
0: oh, oh yeah michelle and i just watched it yesterday it's yeah i mean it's something <laughs> it's uh it's a hard one to watch yeah. uh i'm i suspect there's a lot of truth in it like i mean like any documentary some things are probably going to get sen- sensationalized yeah. um but they de- they they spend a little bit of time talking about omega-3s and, and fish oils and then yeah. they talk about algae oil as yep. maybe sort of a a substitute perhaps and so Um, It's sort of fresh in my mind, so I just wanted to ask you about that.
1: Yeah, I haven't seen it. I've heard a little bit about it. I would imagine for a lot of people, it would call into question whether or not they want to consume fish and what sorts of Mm -hmm. fishing factors they want to support. Yeah. It's a tough one, right? Like, I think I think it's the sort of thing where, you know, there's also a lot of different documentaries on vegetarianism and veganism Mm, and and whatnot. mm. And those hold a lot of truth, of course. And at the end of the day, we have to find, like, what diet is going to work best for someone, not only physically, but also mentally, emotionally, spiritually, all of that. And that's going to be different for each person, I think. Would
0: you say diet is very individual?
1: Yes, absolutely. I think there's some...
0: Yeah, like, do some people, like generally do better so for me like as you know i was a vegetarian for most of my life and then introduced animal proteins and honestly like it's been it's been so good for me like i've digested things so much better i i feel much better um i just don't know if i could go and be a vegan right and so i i really feel like diets are very individualized like many things are in health and so you know, I always get conflicted with something like the food guide or something where it's like broad strokes and um, understanding, like, obviously it's just sort of a general approach and you need to start somewhere. But, but when you get to like, I think the specifics really matter for each Mm -hmm. person, wouldn't you say?
1: Absolutely. I think, um, gosh, you know, even in, so I teach some of the nutrition classes at the Boucher Institute, which is the naturopathic college here in Vancouver. And, um, even in like first and second year nutrition, we we talk about these sorts of topics because they they are important things to think about. The food guide being one of them. So looking at food guides even from other countries compared to Canada, and then talking about how at the end of the day, you know they they and they have been evolving too. The food guide recommendations and improving, but at the end of the day, they are still generalized. Right? They are not individualized recommendations, and for some people, um, it's not appropriate. Some of the mm-hmm. recommendations, it's too much carbohydrate. It's spiking their blood sugars it's whatever it is right worsening their autoimmune disease um so yes very much individualized and I think that's a big thing I work with with patients because kind of like I said before physical health yes very important but like as naturopathic doctors we also also focus on the mind body and spirit and all of that right so I think it does very much come down to, you know, even, you know, I have a little form on uh, a spot on my intake form that asks, just are you currently following any particular diet or are you avoiding any foods? And Mm. I got all sorts of different responses on there. Right. But anytime I see vegan or vegetarian, my first question, once I see the patient in person is, well, what is your reason for that? I need to know that. That's really important because if it's mm. like a religious thing or like an ethical thing, you know, I'm not really out to change that for people. If it's like a health thing, then I'd want to know more about it. Well, what is it about that? Why do you feel that it's better for you? And maybe it is, but but maybe it isn't. And maybe they do end up feeling better when they incorporate some animal products, such as yourself. It's so individual, and it can take a little bit of investigation for sure to find out what. Do people right get is.
0: offended by that question?
1: I've never had someone be offended. Um mm. I think and I, I hope I think it's because of the way I ask it I just say what's the reason mm. for that and people just tell me and I say okay mm. great and something that I find very helpful and this is just luck of the draw I don't know but I was actually raised vegetarian so mm. I was vegetarian from the age of I guess birth vegetarian to, or vegan well technically vegetarian, but it ended up being vegan a lot of the time because, so I told you how my family was so um, big on health, right? So they would also only buy organic food. And Mm -hmm. back then, right, this was like the 80s, 90s, back then it was not quite as easy to get everything organic like it is today. And so my my parents, although they would consume eggs and dairy, they would only consume them if they could find them organic. So dairy was pretty hard to find organic back then. I do remember eating some eggs for sure, but I remember definitely there were periods of time when we were, we were basically vegan for long periods of time. And then if we could get organic dairy or could get organic eggs, then we would incorporate them. So I think being raised that way, and I feel like my parents did a pretty good job. Like they did the best they could at that time with the knowledge that they had. And, and that's of course constantly evolving but i think based on that i am much more open minded to it I'm like yeah mm. you could raise healthy kids with a diet like that but you just have to be on top of it and make sure they're getting all their nutrients and it's completely doable um, well there's a
0: lot of vegetarians who just don't do it properly like exactly. I, I i'm very confident that i probably could have been 4 inches taller had i did it had i done it properly like it was just it was always a lot of carbs and, yeah. and a lot of uh, you know just to meet your caloric requirements yeah. kind of thing right like it just wasn't you know and that's not 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 a slight to my parents they did whatever yeah. they knew was best and yeah. uh but that's just the way it was i remember remember uh you know my idea of a green was iceberg lettuce right <laughs> yeah. like and that was and i just to think about that because it's been such an evolution from, from that time but um that's that was my vegetable you know yeah. what i mean like
1: Isn't the most commonly eaten vegetable in North America potatoes because of French fries?
0: Probably. I read that once years
1: ago in a book and I went, whoa, (laughs) I live in a bubble. (laughs) But yeah, yeah. Um, You know, it's funny too, Pesh, because it sort of maybe brings us around a bit there when you were saying about um, you feel like you could have been taller and and whatnot, right? So protein, for example, is one of those nutrients that may or may not be of concern on a more plant-based diet, depending on how that plant-based diet is done because it can be sometimes more challenging to get enough protein and all of the different building blocks of protein, which are called amino acids, mm-hmm. we need to consume a lot of those. Otherwise, we can't make proteins within our own body. And mm-hmm. that includes our mm-hmm. growth and our development. So it's especially important for kids that at every meal, not just throughout the day, but at each of their meals, they're consuming all of those amino acids to get the proper protein. And that can sometimes be challenging on a, um, a vegan or vegetarian diet unless it is really given some attention to
0: for sure for yeah. sure so when we when we go back to um the brain health you talked about we we hmm. started this conversation about omega 3s is there anything else that sort of jumps at you for like a 2 to 4 year old that's really yeah. important for brain health like an essential nutrient or vitamin or
1: yeah yeah i think honestly I wouldn't pinpoint it onto like one specific one, it's a bit more, ah, there's a few things here. So it's a bit more general, I'd say, in regard to are they getting everything that they need? Because all the different vitamins, minerals, things like that on a biochemical level, like when you actually look at biochemical reactions in our body, a lot of those vitamins and minerals are used as what we call either coenzymes or cofactors. It's essentially something that's helping an enzyme work properly. It's literally helping our metabolism work properly and all of our energy reactions work properly. So some of those maybe stand up a little more than others in regards to different like all the B vitamins, um, magnesium, like so many different of the vitamins and minerals which you would find in a high quality kids multivitamin, multimineral. Mm, okay. um, and again, like it just depends like how deficient the diet is. If the diet is quite deficient and the child's very picky and we're working on it, in the meantime, it might be a good idea for them to take a multi. If the child's not picky and seems to be thriving, maybe they don't need one. It kind of depends mm-hmm. on what they're what they're willing to eat. But yeah, I'd say it's it's not really focused on one specific nutrient so much, I don't think, as much as like, are they deficient in anything at all? Like, are they getting everything that they need? I think in regard to like, yeah just brain health and mood and all of that sort of thing i think there does get to be a lot of focus on things like all the b vitamins in that regard um but it's at the end of the day it's everything's working in concert together
0: we hear more and more about this sort of brain to gut connection which is sort of why i i bring it up and so i'm assuming it's not like and i don't know and if we if we have a sense of whether that connection is developed right from the beginning or sort of it's an evolving connection, but how important is it for people to really think about the gut health of children and how that sort of impacts the brain?
1: Yeah. So that's a really, really big topic. Um, There's a lot, a lot of variables. So in regard to gut health, again, this is starting pretty much since birth things to consider. And sometimes like we can't prevent these things because they've already happened, but it's helpful to consider what's going on. Where did, how, what was this kid start in life like, right? And so mm-hmm. number one thing is, were they born by a natural birth or by a C-section? because that is going to ex- give be their first exposure to bacteria in the world. Um is it coming from mom or is it just coming from the hospital or wherever they hmm. wherever they were born, right? And so that even is like their essentially when baby's born, they have a just before they're born I should say, they essentially have a sterile digestive tract and that starts being inoculated with hopefully beneficial bacteria as they get older and their very first exposure is again either mom or whatever in the hospital sure. or whatever the right. environment and so that's the first thing you know were they did they get that beneficial exposure or not um it's part of the reason too why they like to have if they can't get that from mom right away sometimes they'll put baby on dad's chest get some skin to skin contact from dad getting beneficial bacteria from dad just some sort of exposure to beneficial bacteria as soon as possible so that's one thing to think about and you know sometimes too um probiotics can be given if necessary to even to very young babies they don't taste like much they're pretty easy to administer so you can do that um you can do that at older ages as well but it would be especially important if baby was born by c-section so that's one thing to consider and then another thing to think about too is um was mom able to breastfeed or not because if they were that's yet another Kind of opportunity for baby now to develop their immune system. And if they don't get that in their fed formula, unfortunately, they, you know, they, they miss out a little bit there too. So that's sort of, you know, information that's good to know. You may or may not be able to, you know, interfere essentially because that may have already happened, right? But it's it's helpful to know for sure what, what were their initial exposures even within the first few months of life. Um, So that does start laying down the, the sort of the stage, shall we say, um, of gut health and that foundation. But other things to think about too. So in regard to yeah, formula versus breast milk. Again, if mom can't breastfeed, she can't breastfeed, right? Baby mm-hmm. needs to eat, baby needs nutrition. And so formula is a way to accomplish that. But it's interesting because um I meant to look up the year and I didn't I forgot to look it up here. But um it wasn't that long ago that formula started being fortified with essential fatty acids, which right. we're just talking about here, the omega 3s and all of that. Like um, essentially, in in the past, they were not fortified, just not realizing how important they were. Now, we mm-hmm. know how important they are for baby's development, so we fortify it. But it begs the question, well, what else are we missing out on? I mean, we know already that there are way more things in breast milk than there are in formula. We can't possibly put everything in there. There's certain even just aspects of mom's immune system that she passes along to baby. And so, you know, there's no way to get that. You can't really fortify that into a, into a formula. So, we do the best we can given the circumstances and that's funny too because that's something that I've um, mentioned to a lot of parents where I'd say you know like at the end of the day as a parent you're doing the best you can with the resources you have and the information you have and the knowledge you have at any given time and I think that's true of almost all parents um, that they really are doing the best they can and making the decisions that they feel are best so the, I guess the sort of breast milk formula sort of debate. Well, and our, and
0: our so. bodies are so resilient, right? Yeah. Like even like, you know, you do your best you can. and But even if somehow your your kid is, you know, not getting what they need, yeah. the body has this amazing ability to sort of bounce back if you give it a chance. And I'm sure that applies to the gut and the brain and all that.
1: Well, that's where, yeah.
0: Oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, I, oh, I was just going to say like, I, I, I'm sure you get this kind of question of like, oh, you know, I gave my kid, you know, I fed them ice cream like every weekend or like ate, gave them a bunch of crap like yeah. for five days in a row or whatever. Like, are they, you know, what's going to happen what's to them? Happen? Like this sort of, yeah, is it like, is this acute almost exposure like going to kill my kid? Or, or and, you know, my first my first instinct would be, again, back to sort of the human body being so resilient that no, there's probably a way to sort of, um, recover from any sort of acute exposure. Yeah. What are your thoughts on that?
1: Oh, I love this question. The resiliency question. It's sort of the idea of like, well, how bad is it really? And right. I think it's a great question for kids, for for adolescents, for adults. I think at all stages of life, this is a very, very relevant question. So What I normally tell patients is the idea, and this is gonna sound really cliche because I'm sure everyone's heard it before, it's the idea of moderation, right? But Mm. the problem is, is that a lot of people don't really understand what moderation is. So I essentially, moderation in regards to like eating well versus having a treat to kind of simplify Mm. it so the idea is that like when we label foods as bad or off limits or whatnot it can create a lot of issues surrounding even especially in young kids like potentially setting the set for disordered eating and whatnot like we really ideally don't want to do that we want to set the stage for really really healthy eating um kind of mindset and so the uh, kind of principle that i tell a lot of patients is like to live by almost an 80 20 sort of rule maybe 90 10 if you're keen but the idea is that you don't need to eat well 100 percent of the time and never have any treats? Essentially, if you're able to eat well about eighty percent of the time, and about twenty percent of the time you, you are having things that maybe nourish your body and your mind in other ways, um, you know, then I'm okay with that. Now there are exceptions to that rule, particularly if there are any serious allergies. That would be mm-hmm. a really important one where like mm-hmm. that's not a rule that has to be one hundred percent avoided. But as a general rule for the general population, I feel like people are. Um, more compliant and happier and more nourished with their mind, body, and spirit where they're able to like take more pleasure in eating um, and not have to be, you know, stressed or, or worried or, or whatnot to quite quite the same degree.
0: Well, I would say even from an adult perspective, right? Yes. Like I, I've gone through my own bit of like trying to figure out what works and what doesn't. And that's a really stressful time yeah. to, to feel like, oh, th- I think this food may have affected things. And it wasn't until I was just like, you know, I just need to make sure I have these, you know, particular foods or food groups or whatever. And just it it essentially just kind of, you know, still very individualized to sort of what works for me, but just worried less about like the really specific details. And if I missed out on a certain food or, you know, I had something that maybe I shouldn't, that 20% or that 10%, to just not stress about it and just kind of enjoy, enjoy just living and enjoy eating.
1: You know, this comes up a lot with patients because, I mean, we talk about food sensitivities with kids. It comes up with adults too, of course. At any stage of life, someone could be wanting to improve their diet, figure out what foods Mm -hmm. they're reacting to, right? And so there's a couple ways to do that. One would be like eliminating a lot of common food sensitivities from your diet for a period of time, kind of like a cleanse, right? And then slowly and systematically adding them back in to see if you have any reactions. That way takes a lot of time, but some people really love it and you do get a lot of information that way. Another way you can do it is by food sensitivity testing. So this isn't like allergy testing the way you're testing for like a life-threatening allergy. This is more testing for foods that have a delayed onset reaction. So the person might not necessarily get symptoms that day, but they might get symptoms the next day or even a couple of days later. And so it can get a little tricky sometimes figuring those ones out. So sometimes food sensitivity testing is really helpful. now, with those two sort of approaches, what always comes up, always, of course, because we're human, is some degree of non-compliance, whether it's because there was a social event or the person just had a craving or um, you know they were moving all weekend and just had to order pizza because there was no mm-hmm. food. Mm-hmm. It happens, it happens all the time. So what I try to tell people is, this is life, this is normal, right? This happens. Um, If you, you know, everyone uses the word cheat, right? Which I don't love that word, but people use it. If you cheat, then try if you can to just cheat with one food, because then if you have a reaction, you know what you reacted to. If that's Mm -hmm. impossible and you have pizza, which is probably full of several different types of, you know, ingredients that someone might react to, just document if anything came up, give yourself a break, And just move on, you know, like get back to it as soon as you reasonably can. Re-implement everything as soon as you can. The process will take a bit longer, but like that's life. And I certainly find that, and this probably stems from even just like my childhood and and my young adulthood and then going through school and then being out in the real world seeing patients, Mm -hmm. I feel like um, the more sort of down to earth and flexible I have quite naturally become just by working with patients, the more and more I'm able to connect with patients and I think help Mm -hmm. a lot more people right? Because the sort of strategy of you have to be perfect all the time, it absolutely is not relatable. It's not sustainable. Patients don't connect with that. They don't jive with that. And I think it really, it's, it's, yeah, it makes it a lot harder to help people. And I'm in the business of helping people. That's what I want to do here. I want to connect and help. And I feel like that's something that has very genuinely evolved in me as I've gotten older and had more experiences. And uh, yeah, I like working with, with people in, in kind of these real world scenarios. (laughs)
0: <laughs> these uh, these food sensitivity tests, yeah. are they like are they sort of the be end end all kind of thing or no um, how accurate are they and can you use them? Can you do them on children?
1: Really, really good questions. So um, I find generally food sensitivity tests are fairly helpful. Um, you can do them on children now for the first couple years of life, and particularly if baby is being breastfed their reactions aren't really gonna be much different than mums. So, and it's Mm, also a bit traumatic to take a little blood sample from a a really young one. So don't necessarily do them on kids that young, but as, as they get older, you certainly can. And I find those tests can be helpful for a couple of reasons. There are definitely clients that will walk into my office, say they want to do a food sensitivity test, and I'll be like, Honestly, I think we should just cut the common culprits. Let's cut gluten, dairy, and eggs and see what happens. And Mm -hmm. they often get better and they save several hundred dollars and they're, you know, they're happy. Now, that's not always the case. And it's funny, too, we're talking about this because fairly recently, actually, I had a client. um, She had brought one of her children in to see me. And then a couple years later, here she is bringing in the next one. Lots of eczema. And, um, essentially she, she was wanting to do the food sensitivity test because it was just getting really confusing what, you know, what her child was reacting to. So we ran it and it was actually really, really helpful because we found out actually that anyway, this is kind of making a long story short, but it was discovered that the culprit was the dairy free almond milk that her son was Mm. consuming because, because he was having a reaction to almonds. And so by the time they removed the almonds then the skin cleared up and actually for them the common culprits weren't actually that bad of culprits it was the almonds so mm-hmm. it's maybe a less common one because i mean i definitely see reactions to various nuts and whatnot but you know gluten dairy even eggs we hear about those all the time right going gluten-free going dairy-free and they are common ones but sometimes cleaning up the diet doesn't cut it and a and test can be very very helpful Some people too even just want it to almost like legitimize their concerns. They're like, Oh, I think it's this, but I just want the test to know for sure. And when they have the results or more, so I would say when the parent gets the results and shows them to the child, then the child goes, Oh, okay. I actually have to avoid this food. And for some parents that's worth it just for that reason alone
0: there's like there's so much there that you said that I feel like we could do a whole I know. <laughs> episode on because like even when you talked about dairy and gluten sort of being the main culprits often is the yeah. case I always kind of wondered why is that like is it just like such overexposure anyways I feel like that's just another topic, <laughs> Big topic. Uh, I do want to jump though to um so we talked a little bit like the two to four year olds let's jump to like the teenagers mm, right i don't know if you get teenagers. any teens or yeah uh, or young teens kind of coming in yeah what is sort of what are you noticing is are, are big issues there um what's uh what's something that you feel like you constantly almost have to focus on when it comes to like treatment or advice or
1: yeah um so Young, what's called like preteen sort of thing, sure. and teenagers. Yeah. This is a really different age group, right? Because when kids are really, really little, they're just eating whatever mom gives them. Yeah. The older they get, they have more free choice, right? They go to friends' houses, they go to school. They, I mean, these days things everything is different, but let's just say <laughs> right. in general times, they're they're Generally, eating outside yes. of the house and they're making more decisions for themselves, particularly into uh, teenagehood. But that's where I find there and I wouldn't I don't even know exactly what the age is it's just sort of like you can just tell when the kid's sitting in front of you can I sort of like educate this child a bit or are they just too young they're too young and, are you are you, you know? talking
0: to the parent or are you talking to the kid both. Like, what is okay? Both, but I'm
1: Cause being, I because I could just imagine these yeah. kids
0: on their phones, and I'm just generalizing. <laughs> but like, just like not wanting to be there, and so yeah. you're trying to talk. Like, that must be a hard thing for you to. Oh, that's such a question. With.
1: Well, again, Pesh, it, it depends on the age of the of the child of the patient. Right. But I, as much as possible, especially teenager, hundred percent. The teenager sits in the the how should I say the patient's chair not the parent. The parent probably sits in the patient chair if the child's two months old. It's different. But yeah, when I can have like a a good conversation and I'm asking them about their bowel movements or whatever, I'm not asking the mom about the bowel movements, then the child is in the patient seat. And at that age, they absolutely can learn and they can be educated and kind of take more of their choices into their own hands. And I say that right to them. I say, hey, like, and I don't say it in a, in a, you know, any sort of negative way. I just say like, hey, like- Judgmental way. No, you can't, you have to connect, right? And so- I'll just say like, hey, like you're getting older now, right? Like you're making more decisions for yourself. You're probably doing some cooking. You're eating out. So like you're not just eating whatever mom gives you anymore. And they're like, yeah, right? And I say, okay, well, like this is going to definitely involve some commitment from you as well, right? Because, you know, we have these results here or we want to do X, Y, Z to help your health, your gut, whatever. And it's going to be up to you a lot of the time because you're going to be making these decisions quite frequently. And then they kind of, whatever, they take accountability for that. And then another thing i think um, that comes up with that too is sort of the idea of i think to like like one thing that i like to bring up is that so many kids and i'd say this is teenagers yes but i'd say it's a little bit the younger ages like the preteens even like kind of like seven eight nine ten eleven somewhere in there where i say to them because they say oh that's gross if they you mm. know i tell them like i want them to eat a certain food or whatever right and if they go oh that's gross one of the things i kind of like to mention and bring to their attention is i say well you know when you were younger and mom and dad started you know introducing foods to you you spat out everything and they kind of look at me and i say like you wouldn't have even liked pizza and they go what and i just explain to them because when you first are being introduced to foods when you're really little you, you do That's a brand new flavor for you it's like, ugh. And your taste buds need time to get used to that. Kids can spit right. out a food many, 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 many times. And understandably, parents can sometimes give up on that food before the child has had a chance to get used to the flavor and actually grow to like it. So I explain that to them and how like maybe you never had a chance with a lot of these certain foods. Well, we can try it again now. You might not like it for a little while, but your body will get used to it. And I, and I look at them, too, and I say, and you know what? It makes it a lot more fun to eat when you get older. Right. Because like you get older and you get to enjoy more flavors and you get to eat out at restaurants, have fun with your friends. And I kind of try and put it like that, like, hey, this doesn't have to limit you. Like we can expand your taste buds and you can you can have more fun eating when you get older. And honestly, I'd say that's generally received with a pretty positive response Mm. where they kind of like they've learned something. They're like, oh, that's interesting. Maybe I could try that kind of cool i mean that's that's a really particular like you can't really have that sort of you know logical conversation with a very very young child like you just can't it tastes gross they spit it out right um but as kids get older they have uh they just they understand a bit more you can have a different level of conversation with them
0: well what what it reminded me of was like the first time. I really started drinking alcohol and it was just like, this is disgusting (laughs) and or drinking beer. And I was like, this does not taste good whatsoever, but then you kind of get used to it and you actually start to taste the little notes and, you know, it tastes pretty good afterwards, right? I don't Probably do a not, on not the <laughs> right sort of examples to maybe share what in your practice, but that's sort of what triggers what it reminds lives. you
1: of. It's it's a reasonable yeah. example for sure, yeah. right? It's that idea of the taste buds getting used to things, and of yeah. course, at that age, it's so important that the taste buds do get used to a variety of foods to get adequate nutrition, right? So, yeah, yeah. yeah so that's yeah. generally received fairly well. I, I try really hard like I, I want to connect with my pediatric patients I don't want them to feel like I'm just talking to their parent about them and they're just sort of in the room like I try to really involve them and build a relationship and some rapport with them and
0: create some engagement yeah give them a sense of ownership right yeah,
1: yeah. and some probably more than I mean
0: kids at that age I mean you think about ourselves right when we were young teens like you're always just kind of following what your parents tell you to do and you feel like you're not able to take any sort of ownership in your life for most kids anyways. Right. And so I think that that sounds like a really sort of great leadership approach that you're, that you're employing. So.
1: Yeah. I think it's important. Yeah. Yeah. I think especially I'd say, I mean, All healthcare practitioners are different, but I say it's pretty common that kids have some experiences at a young age where they sort of feel like they're not really heard or, and maybe not Mm. even necessarily in a healthcare setting, right? In like a family, like a family, family, friend, family, friend, what heard. And I like to hear them. I like to get to know them and kind of what's their world like, how do they view the world? And it's interesting too, the number of times I've asked a kid a question, they answer me and the parent didn't know. They're like, oh, really? Like maybe they, their sleep is disturbed in some way or um, their digestion's, Oh, I had a, I had a child once who was having some blood in their stool and the parent didn't know. And I just, mm-hmm. it's part of my general intake. And I asked them, do you ever see blood in the stool? And they went like this. And I was like, whoa. And we had to, of course, we have to address that. Right. So I, yeah, it's, it's important. That it doesn't surprise room, me though, right? But, Does that
0: surprise yeah. you that the parents don't know?
1: It depends on what it is, right? Sometimes okay. I'm not surprised at all. And other times I go, whoa, you didn't tell your mom that. And it—I don't know. It just maybe depends on their comfort level with their parent. I'm really not sure. Or maybe mm. some kids are really shy, right? Yeah. So yeah, yeah.
0: Mm. So omega three still really important <laughs> for
1: at that age. Yeah. I mean, yeah. That's probably a life, is
0: that a life, like people should generally be making sure they take that one, right?
1: Yes. So the omegas, omega-3 and omega-6 are what are called essential fatty acids. It means that we cannot make them ourselves. So if we don't consume them, we will become deficient. And if you become quite deficient, I mean, there's a lot of different ways that a omega-3, 6 sort of deficiency can show up. Um, But the point is, yes, they are essential and we need to consume them. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and it's challenging sometimes, especially if someone, and this isn't just kids, right? I've got a ton of adults who are like, ugh, fish, I could never eat fish, oh my gosh, you know, and then we have to find either, what I like to do then, if that's truly the case, is a combination of um, all the vegan vegetarian sources um, and then probably a supplement as well, just because okay. sometimes there's not, there's some, yeah, some, uh questionability, if that's a word, (laughs) um, we're making it a word. Yeah, it's a word with the, um, sort of ability for someone to convert the omegas that are found in a plant-based source into the kind of active ones that are found in fish. They might be a great converter. They might be a terrible converter. We don't really know. Um, and so I like to just get a diverse number of sources to the best that we can.
0: When you're talking to these kids, um, do you notice a shift in the parents maybe over time where they're like, because you talk about like you want to make sure that they're heard, right? Yeah. And so especially those parents when they're when they're there's like oh that's I didn't know that that was about you like I don't know if you've seen this or I wonder if you I just know if 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 Avina if I found out something about Avina I'd be like shit I gotta like I gotta pay attention here like right, right. but do you see that like it's sort of a a wake up call for some parents to be like okay I gotta be a little bit more attuned here I gotta really. Um, yeah. hear them out and, and, and really let them have their own voice here. Do you see any of that?
1: I see so much variety, Pash. Um, so much variety. There there are the parents who would rather just give their kid a video game and sit in the corner and they just want to talk to me. And then I'll like, bring the kid in and be like, okay, I've mm. got to ask you know Timmy or whatever some questions. I've got to bring mm. him in and ask because I need to know from him. You, you may not even know these answers. Um, so you get those parents who – You know is there much change not sure it's it's challenging right you know sometimes it's it's just easier to sort of give the child distraction so that we can talk right and you know we do see that sometimes you take the distraction away then the child's very distracting and then it's harder to get Mm. things done so that can definitely be a challenge but but to answer your question like although there's a lot of variability like yes i have seen definitely parents who have then and then even said later like oh i didn't even know that and I, I, then I feel a little bad, too, because sometimes they just feel terrible. They're like, I can't believe I didn't know that. And they say, look, I'm really going to pay more attention. And I've definitely had conversations, too, where I've said, okay, well, if that happens again, like, you know, blood in the stool would just be a kind of a really serious example. If that happens again, you have to tell mom, Okay. You know, something like that. Um, mm-hmm. Or even I think it was once even the child had seen blood in the stool, but it was it wasn't recent at all. And it hadn't happened since. So it probably wasn't a big deal, like a one off a long, long time ago. But I did say, like, okay, if that happens again, you got to tell mom. And they said, OK, you know, mm-hmm. and so hopefully that just built a little bit more of a, a connection there. They realized it was yeah. important that they were they were allowed to tell their mom. Like mom was safe, was safe to tell mom. So yeah, yeah, safety is such
0: an important thing. I mean, we talk about it in leadership all the time and parents are like our, our ultimate leaders. And if parents don't create that sort of safe safe space for the kids, I'm not surprised, right? That, that some kids, um, well, first of all, they might not know that it's a big deal, but then just, oh, well, is my mom or dad going to overreact to this? And what is that going to mean for me? And are they going to judge me for that? All that kind of stuff is probably working in their heads, I would think. Yeah. 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 Definitely. Um, okay. So that's, so that's great. So we got a good sense of like from two to four, we got a sense of like, what's important for, uh, for, for teens. Is there anything sort of more for teens that you feel like is important for people to know?
1: Um, yes. I mean, there's, there's always individual considerations that you have to think about. So is your teenage patient, um, are they an athlete? right so that's going to change Mm. some of their nutritional requirements um teenage girls sometimes are put on the birth control pill that can Mm. deplete the body of a lot of different nutrients so you have to think about that and trying to replenish those as best you can like things like that do start coming up in teenagehood because these children are becoming adults right Mm. um so yeah and some kids are like well from the athlete point of view like gosh some kids are 10 15 times more active than their peers and um you know they're going to have some different different requirements there than children that are sedentary although we of course try and encourage that no kids should be completely sedentary yeah. um yeah i'm trying to think like other specifically with teenagers i mean the picky eating uh, i can think of some other things that can come up and i think this might be more of like a i shouldn't say terribly recent but call it maybe the most recent like five to ten years sort of thing is with just the availability of um you like yeah just kids and teens now like buying more of their own food eating more processed food um another one i think that has come up actually quite a bit is caffeine so kids right. start then they're not really kids anymore right they're being energy older. drinks or whatever yeah. yes energy drinks you know frappuccinos straight up black coffee espresso whatever it is right um and so Honestly, for some kids it's just it's just way too much. They're not sleeping well, they're developing anxiety, their digestion is taking a hit. Um, and so sometimes too, and that would be an example where I think a lot of parents don't necessarily know if their fourteen year old is drinking, you know, a double shot frappuccino every day or something. They don't know. They're buying it at a Starbucks on their lunch break or whatever. And so that's one I think that can come up. Um, and it's not that caffeine is always bad, it's more like if if they are having symptoms from it, if they're having issues with it, um, because yeah, there, those sorts of concerns between, yeah, digestion and sleep and whatnot, those do come up throughout, throughout life for sure. So
0: that's what I was going to ask you, like what yeah. your stance is on just in caffeine in general, like, is it, mm-hmm. is it, cause it's a, it's a stimulant. It's something that I would assume, um, disrupts the sort of natural balance of something like maybe harm or whatever. Um, and so I'm assuming that, that, can't be a good thing but you're saying but just by the way you sort of said it it's maybe it's it's not as always bad as it seems or
1: i mean i would prefer that when children are growing and developing that they don't consume caffeine at the end of the day the reality is they probably are going to consume some i think the bigger picture and something really well, it's important in so many about, things too it's right? in so many things it's like, everything from yeah, chocolate yeah, to yeah, like yeah yeah at the energy drinks and that, yeah. the energy drinks have other concerns with them too, just all the other added sugar and like sure. so many other. Yeah. There's just a million topics we could go into here. But um, the caffeine thing, my, my general standpoint for a lot of things, for a lot of foods, it comes back to that 80, 20, 90, 10 rule probably, is that if someone is having uh, an issue with it, whether it's a symptom that's coming up or whatnot, if it's causing a problem for them, then it's a problem for them and we need to rein it in or perhaps eliminate it completely. I mean, some kids, they just don't know, right? And they're consuming way, way too much or way, way too often. And they might be okay having like, you know, an o gray tea on the weekend with their mom, but having like a double shot coffee every day at school is not mm-hmm. doing them any favors. But honestly, to be fair, that's true for adults too. I have a lot Mm -hmm. of adult patients that do not tolerate caffeine properly. And when they get it out, they're less anxious and they sleep better and they have more formed bowel movements and like so many different things. Um, And that can get again into much more depth in regard to, well, are they just a slow caffeine metabolizer? You know, what sort of, you know, what's their, their gene there that they have for breaking down caffeine? Like you you can go really in depth and look into stuff like that, or you can just go based on your symptoms, right? This is,
0: this is kind of a specific question, but like, if someone is having coffee with a meal, like, I don't know if I read this or, or mm-hmm. where I got this information, um, uh, but doesn't caffeine kind of take like drive blood away from like your, your gut or something like that so that it would make it harder for you to digest or doesn't it have a sort of an ill effect on the digestion? So you maybe may not want to couple like a coffee or something like that after a meal or I don't know.
1: So that's not exactly the question I thought you were going to ask, but I think it ties in there. So with caffeine. Um, so I, I'd say the main thing to think about there is that if it is one of the main things that comes up is that caffeine can stimulate the digestive tract and cause like diarrhea, looser bowel movements, that sort of thing. So essentially what it's doing is it's stimulating the gut to move food through faster, but you okay, don't necessarily want. becoming more hyperactive. Want. Yeah, you don't necessarily okay. want the gut to be like be have food moving through it so, so quickly, because if you do, you have less time to absorb your nutrients. Mm. Like if a patient is having looser stools, that means food is moving through more quickly, typically. Um, and yeah, you just have less time. If you have less time spent in the digestive tract, then you're not absorbing your nut- nutrients adequately. And that can lead to lower nutrient levels as well. So that's one concern that can come up. Also, a lot of things that contain caffeine, like coffee and tea, they contain a lot of other different compounds as well, which can actually bind to a lot of the minerals in our food and prevent us from Mm. absorbing them. So it's usually actually from a nutrition standpoint, better to not have like coffee or tea with a meal but you'll also get people who if they have coffee or tea on an empty stomach it really upsets their stomach Mm. so for some people coffee and tea just don't work caffeine just just doesn't work doesn't sit well with them for others they find like it's this great digestive tonic um but you can run into problems there too because some people we start investigating we realize that if they don't have a coffee or two every day they don't have bowel movements, and their sure. body is only having bowel movements because of the kind of stimulant effect of the caffeine. But on their own, they're actually quite backed up. And then, then we need to do some investigation: why isn't their gut moving food along appropriately on its own?
0: So and is a that? Big just, uh, you, I mean, this is probably yeah, it's a big question. It's probably you're probably going to say it depends, but uh, I, I would think in that particular case, the person who isn't able to have proper bowel movements and requires that coffee or two. That's probably something i'm assuming that would be something that was sort of set up for them over time right like that they sort of maybe became more and more dependent perhaps on that coffee in order for and then sort of they kind of maybe they reached a new balance point or something
1: possibly i'd say it's more likely there's something underlying going on they have an imbalance in the gut bacteria so they can't essentially digest food appropriately and move it on along at an appropriate pace Um, they may have a food sensitivity, just like a food that they are reacting to that is preventing them from having regular bowel movements. They may just have a huge imbalance in the amount of fiber in their diet. They may not have enough or not enough of the right kinds. Um, I think at the end of the day, like if, if someone stops caffeine and they have good digestion on their own, they should continue to have regular bowel movements on their own. If they stop caffeine and they stop having bowel movements, something else is going on. We like certainly like, being backed up is not due to a caffeine deficiency. You know what I mean? Sure. Like it's not an essential yeah. nutrient. Yeah. So does that answer your question? Yep.
0: Yeah. Yep. Yeah. 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 Well, no, I, I think no. I th- yeah, definitely for sure. So when I, I do want to. I do want to. Um, well, actually, that maybe I'll, uh, there's so much I want to ask you, which is sort of why I'm stumbling <laughs> um, here.
1: Why well, maybe, maybe I'll just maybe I'll
0: just ask it. No, it's about like it's about water, right? So mm. should people be drinking and, it, it, you know, should people be drinking water with their meals? Like, do, cause, cause I'm, th- I'm thinking about like, you know, your stomach acid, right. And like, mm. don't you want, don't you want your food to just kind of spend, let the stomach kind of do its work. And if you drink too much water, will it dilute things or do you, any thoughts on that?
1: Yeah. That's a, that's a topic that comes up sometimes. So from like a Again, just like a physiological, biochemical point of view. Um, there's a lot of acid in our stomach. It's pretty difficult to like really dilute that or turn it alkaline. Okay. Like if okay. you consume some food, the acid's gonna come in and kind of take care of that. There's all sorts of what are called buffer systems all over our body to keep the pH where we want it to be at that particular part of our body, basically. Mm. So I'd say the water thing, what it comes down to more importantly, is um how someone feels like some people feel better having a bit of water with a meal. At the end of the day, I wouldn't recommend really large amounts because it is probably going to make them feel heavier and more bloated. It's probably better to have a glass before you start your meal. Um, and that I think really comes down to individuality. Um, Mm. person personally, like I like, yeah, I definitely like to have water before a meal and then maybe a couple small sips during a meal, but certainly not large glasses. I think that's generally better just from like a, a, honestly yeah not feeling bloated or heavier like the stomach is just extremely distended um yeah having those larger amounts with a meal is usually just doesn't feel the best i think that's more what it comes down to yeah yeah Yeah.
0: okay thanks for entertaining that question (laughs) Uh, what are your top five sort of do's and don'ts like what are when it comes to food like what sort of we kind of talked about a few when it came to essential fatty acids being a really big one but what are some other sort of top ones that are do's and what are like,
1: and these
0: are probably ones that you just don't want to get into. I mean, we talked a little bit about caffeine and,
1: but yeah. Well, honestly, I was asked this question, not exactly this question, but um, this was back when I was, I was still a naturopathic student and someone asked me, they they were not a student. I don't remember what they were studying, but anyway, they just said, um, okay, if you had to sum it up in five words or less, what would be like the most important thing that someone could do for their health? Like what would be like the top advice that mm. you would give? And we were kind of talking about food and diet and nutrition, right? So that was kind of the main thing. And I just, to this day, can't believe how quickly it came to me. I just said, eat more fruits and vegetables. And I was like, <laughs> honestly, that's it. That is like the one thing that no one disagrees about. I mean, unless you're following like the carnivore diet or something. Mm. Um, most people agree that more fruits and vegetables, like, and you can narrow it down to, well, is it because of the fiber or the antioxidants or, what is it but at the end of the day like fruits and vegetables are just like they're they provide us with so many beneficial nutrients that we need Um, and they also too I think displace a lot of not so um, beneficial foods from the diet when we do fill up our plate with a whole bunch of delicious fruits and veggies to start with Um, so that's one thing that I always like to say is like just fill up your plate with half veggies or more you know, and eat more fruits and vegetables in general is a big one. Obviously, there's individual variation in that if someone has a reaction to something or they can't have too much high sugar fruit. But as a general rule, that's a big, big one. I think I talk to a lot, lot of people about Another one is just drink more water. I think as a population, we're probably chronically dehydrated. Um, so that's a big one. I always ask people how much water they're getting, do a little calculation for them and tell them how much they should be having. I mean, there's a general sort of right. two to three liter a day for the average man or woman, but you can get a little more precise if you know the person's uh, body weight and caloric intake and things like that. So water, more fruits and veggies for sure. Um, beyond that, I think, uh, <laughs> I think... It, it, because there is so much in divulge, it gets a little bit trickier. But another really big one that I like to talk about is in regard to to, and I almost feel like I'm stealing a little from Michael Pollan here because he's a. I feel like I look up to him a lot, but he talks a little bit. um, I love him. Yeah. He talks a lot about, um, just like eating food, eat real food, like don't Mm -hmm. eat things that aren't food. So that would be things like trans fats and food Mm -hmm. colorings and artificial flavorings and things that aren't food, like don't put things that aren't food in your body. I really like that one. Like just, just eat food. I like keeping it simple. (laughs) Um, another kind of food related one that I really like is to try to minimize as much as possible things that are just made with white flour it's just mm. this very if you imagine how wheat let's just use wheat because that's where a lot of the white flour comes from um, how wheat is grown and have if you've ever seen like the actual wheat kernel it 's this hard little kernel that has like the bran and the germ and and it has so much there beyond just what turns into sure. white flour at the end of the day. It has all the vitamins and the minerals and the fiber and um, when we refine it and turn it into this fluffy white flour, I mean it does beautiful things in baking and it's i mean you can make really you know amazing and delicious things but it definitely comes back to that 80-20 rule. And I think some people don't realize how much just white flour they're eating. Everything from breakfast cereal to toast to pizza to pasta to baked goods, muffins, right? It's so much just flour. It's empty, um,
0: right? Like there's nothing there.
1: Well, they, they do fortify it back with um, certain vitamins and minerals sure. and things. Yeah. But at the end of the day, and that's a whole other topic too, it's better to eat the whole food in the first place. So yeah, minimizing flour is a big, big one. And uh, and the last one that I would just say is not actually specifically to do with what food we're putting in our body. It's more just a general, a general sort of thing that I have been even doing workshops on, um, like holding workshops I held for for other students in undergrad, which was to do with taking pleasure in eating, like not forgetting about. That's a great one. Yeah. Like, and I think we talked about this at the start, right? Yep, like, yep, yep. um, you taking the pleasure in eating and what that means for you. Is that like going to the farmer's market? Is that like going to spend time with your friends and family and, and, and cooking different things? Is that, you know, like sitting around a table and sharing food, you know, that sort of thing. All, all of that I think is really, really important. So, um, and I yeah, would, that's I would even add one. to, even, I
0: would even add, if I could, to the pleasure of eating is just, sort of being more mindful about what you're eating right just like slow things down and like you can really start to taste the amazing flavors of your of your whole foods and and just allows your digestion to just do its thing right it's just like a such a simple pleasure that i think um we're 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 getting we're losing focus on and we're getting distracted by so many other things and um Yeah. I I really like that one. I don't want to let you off the hook on the first one though. Like you said, I like, I like your five words. Like that's great. It's, it's, it's nice and simple, but I do want to say, okay, what are your top five fruits and what are your top five vegetables?
1: Oh, you're going to go into that in more detail. Okay. Who? So are these just my favorites or ones that I really believe are the best? Yes. The latter. Both, But okay. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Um, and you want like specific fruits and veggies or like Groups.
0: Well, I think, I, I think people who are listening to this would be like, yeah, that's great. Fruits and vegetables. Got it. But like, what are, what are Dr. Cooper's? Yeah. Like, what are her, her favorite five, you know? On yeah.
1: yeah. Yeah. No, that's good. Okay. You're putting me a little on the spot, but I think we can do this. So let's do veggies first. Okay. Number one, I would want like a really wholesome leafy green vegetable. Um, probably my number one would be kale. So hmm. organic kale, because that's something we didn't get time to talk about today, but the, uh, the pesticides on kale can be kind of nasty. So organic kale, that's one of the ones that's important to buy organic, um, kale for sure. It's just like such a, such a nutritious veggie full of calcium, really absorbable calcium, lots of fiber, lots of antioxidants, It kale's just awesome. Hmm. So kale's definitely probably, uh, my number one vegetable, um, I also feel like you, you need to, the theme you need to look at here is like the brightly colored fruits and veggies. Okay. Yes. So yeah. no, no iceberg lettuce. Sorry. <laughs> so yeah, my leafy green would, would be kale. Um, what but if it's got that, food
0: coloring in it? Does that work?
1: No, that would, that would, that would <laughs> okay. contradict my other rule, which was okay. to not put things okay. in your body that aren't food. <laughs> you got to cross reference the rules, Pesh. <laughs> yeah. Okay.
0: All right. go it. Okay.
1: okay. So second veggie would be, I think bell peppers. Um, okay. especially cause they're so brightly colored, right? With the red and the yellow and the orange it's beautiful. Yeah. Sometimes even you find purple ones at the farmer's market, these brightly colored fruits and veg- veggies, tons of antioxidants. So there are tons of vitamin C and bell peppers. Yeah, they're I just heard awesome. About that. Yeah. So kale bell peppers for sure would be two very, very top ones. Um, one that I really, really like, it's not exotic at all, but if you get a locally grown carrot, oh my goodness, do they That's taste so different? Tasty. Oh so my tasty. gosh. You know, just to bring Michael Pollan in again, I can't remember which book it is. It might be in defense of food. It was one of the first few books I read by him. I remember him talking about he was investigating um, these carrots at his local supermarket and where they Mm. had come from. And he discovered they'd kind of come from like the, the state over. And in the state over, they had carrots from his state. So these carrot trucks were just crossing on the highway. (laughs) <laughs> delivering carrots to one another, and it was so bizarre. And of course, there's other, you know, reasons why, you know, um, kind of food systems will do stuff like this for trade and and whatever. But I, just, I was just thinking it's so bizarre, just creating like a yeah higher kind of ecological footprint there on these mm. carrots. But at the end of it, they, uh, the day as well, it's just going to be more, you know, freshly picked and have ultimately because it is more freshly picked, it gets to your plate faster. It will actually have more some more nutrients mm. in it, and it tastes way better. So yeah, carrots stand out to me. I got some some good local ones not too long ago. They're really nice. Okay, kale, peppers, um,
0: carrots, two more mm-hmm.
1: veggies. Hey, honestly, one of my favorites lately. It has actually displaced any other salad greens for me. Is arugula? So mm. arugula it's got a little spice it is, to a little kick. It does. It has kick. Yeah. So. I mean, for someone who's used to an iceberg lettuce or even a romaine or something like that, it would be almost a little peppery, like, "Ooh, what's that? Um, but it's really, really nice. I think it adds a lot, a lot of flavor without needing to rely on, say, a salad dressing quite as mm. much for flavor. Um, it's, yeah, just like a really, really wholesome sort of green that I think has more flavor than a lot of the other kind of leafy greens out there. Um, number five for a vegetable. I think I'm going to have to go with something that's... Um, like a more of a starchy vegetable. Mm. Um, so when we think of starchy vegetables, we think of like squash and like root vegetables and mm-hmm, whatnot, mm-hmm. not just like the leafier sorts of things. Um, but one of, yeah, one of sort of my, my favorites would probably just be um, squash, like all the mm-hmm. different types of squash. I don't know if I could even choose a favorite. I think I grew up mostly with spaghetti squash um which it's called that because it actually if you pull it out it all looks like spaghetti beautiful um but yeah squash as well just because of the bright colors again it's going to have um so much beta carotene just like a plant source of vitamin a there's going to be a lot of fiber in there um squash is just such a such a nutritious food it often can grow locally um and I think it's just kind of forgotten about a little bit. <laughs> um, but Well, yeah, here, in, squash. Here,
0: here in Edmonton, like, I feel like the only thing you can really grow is squash. So oh, people yeah. are probably either sort of a love-hate relationship with that. What do you think of celery? Yeah. I love celery. Like, I love organic yeah. celery. I, I suspect it's got a lot of good minerals. And if, like, you can get some really tasty celery. It's just so refreshing. Oh,
1: yeah. I'm good with celery. I have to say there's a lot of variety in celery. You can get some pretty nasty celery, probably yeah, just because it's true. old or maybe yeah. it wasn't grown in very nutrient rich soil. But yeah. when you get the really good stuff, which is what you're talking about, it's, yeah, it's, yeah. it's thick and, and juicy, right? Yeah, and it's got, yeah. it's like this beautiful green color. It's got the leaves coming out of the top yeah. and it's just crunchy and amazing. I like doing celery with like a nut butter of some sort okay. and sometimes some raisins for a treat. Oh, that's like I... <laughs> Michelle's Ants on the Log dessert <laughs> yeah. that
0: she loves That Yeah, um, I love
1: that. Okay, celery. and then top it's five great. fruits. Okay, those might be easier for some reason. Um, if you had to make me choose, I, I, I was going to say all berries, but that's, sure. That's you know, I, if I did, had to choose one, I'd have to say blackberries because they grow here on the West Coast. Yes, rampant. oh God, yes. They're delicious. Yeah. You can just pick them for free yeah. and store enough in your freezer for months. And they're delicious mm. and they're so high in antioxidants and fiber and oh my gosh so blackberries. i gotta say sure. i gotta say
0: to people who are listening to this if you haven't been to an area i don't know what other areas of the world grow blackberries. blackberry well, no, a lot of areas grow blackberries but if you <laughs> haven't had fresh blackberries off the bush it's it's something yeah. completely different like you're missing out if you're just eating these things from the store like it's just yeah it's it's a completely different experience and also just yeah you pay a ton of money for blackberries at the store and just people they these things are growing on the side of the streets like when you're driving in bc like it's just crazy
1: you can pick like what you would have spent hundreds literally hundreds i'm not exaggerating hundreds of dollars at the store on blackberries you can pick them for free it's right pretty remarkable so yeah i sort of have a little bit of a a personal like i will not pay for blackberries (laughs) like they grow grow for free and so many of them never even get picked and they just rot and go back into the soil every you know at the end of every summer uh no blackberries you just got to pick them yourself (laughs) so blackberries for sure um really any kind of berry but if you made me choose when i say blackberry um apples just because they're easy and mm. the, again really like rich in fiber i find that even just adding like an apple a day sometimes to someone's diet can help with more regular bowel movements it's like one of the best ones there's mm. um yeah just a really really great source of fiber there so and they're delicious let's be honest um i have, I have kind of a funny one and I, i'm surprised that i'm putting it in my top five but it's a couple times a year i will treat myself to a grapefruit and it sounds hmm. kind of weird because, you know, how many people really like grapefruit? And that's fair. That's totally fair. I wouldn't eat it every day. I definitely wouldn't eat it every day. But a couple times a year getting like a really juicy kind of ruby red grapefruit. Oh my gosh. It's just, I don't know what it is about it. Again, that's one of those of acquired tastes that I find. <laughs> Probably acquired. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Vitamin C, all that stuff. You can get a lot of those benefits from eating other citrus fruit, right? Mandarin oranges and things mm-hmm. like that, or navel oranges. But yeah, grapefruit's kind of more of a obscure one, which I, I kind of like being obscure sometimes. It's not that obscure, but you know what I mean? (laughs) I have another one too. My favorite type of pear is a Bosque pear.
0: Oh, I love Bosque. B-O-S-C.
1: Really just rich in fiber, really delicious in in just eating out of hand or putting into like a dessert or or whatnot. Um, Really, all the fruits and veggies are high in fiber, but uh, yeah. And and then honestly, if you- Do you like your
0: pears hard or soft?
1: Medium. <laughs> mm, okay. Okay, <laughs> they've got to have, have a have little it. crunch, but they've got to have the juiciness factor too. I don't want a mushy pear. Mushy is the worst. Okay. Okay. <laughs> I get a lot last- of slack
0: for people who say that like, how do you like your pears crunchy? Like super hard. Mm.
1: Yeah. But I like, I like peaches punch.
0: hard too, which is people think yeah. I'm super weird about that.
1: So. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And I have to say, I've noticed that my recommendations here are morphing from health recommendations to flavor recommendations. Cause I'm just <laughs> sitting here getting so excited about all the different fruits. Um, right. anyway, from a health standpoint, um, for my last one, you know what? Um, it's not a conventionally thought of as a fruit, but I believe it is categorized as a fruit and it would probably be my number one is avocado. Mm. So avocado, gosh, that's even a good one for like, um, wasn't Davina's first food avocado? Mm -hmm. yeah yeah such like i almost feel like it's nature's perfect food (laughs) it's uh it's not only delicious and versatile for uses in a lot of different sorts of things and recipes um but it's the source of some of the healthiest fat it's such an extremely rich source of potassium like we think of bananas as being high potassium avocados are even even richer in potassium it's got a good source of fiber um and just that sort of creaminess is something that you don't really get from other fruits and veggies Mm -hmm. right Um, but yeah, avocado are, are really high up there for, yeah, they're, they're healthy fat and they're just versatility in different dishes.
0: Yeah. You mentioned, um, you mentioned, you know, organic a few times and I think Mm. about, uh, I mean, Michelle and I talked about on on the episode that she was on about, um, how it can be difficult for people to buy organic and, and it's, and it's expensive, like what's your, what's your advice to people who really want to take nutrition seriously, but they're on the lower income side, like, and it's just really tough. Like, what do you, what's, what's your general approach or advice to that?
1: Yeah. Well, I can't remember if you, Michelle talked about this or not. Did you guys talk about the clean 15 and the dirty dozen?
0: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Okay. So I, I would reiterate that. I think it's important. Um, but yeah, I would reiterate the clean 15, dirty dozen sort of idea because I think it's a good tool, especially if someone's like wanting to eat more organic, but they're just looking at the prices thinking, what the heck, mm-hmm. right? And like even, mm-hmm. yeah, in my household, we do can take that into consideration. And especially because, you know, prices can fluctuate week to week, right? So sometimes right. kind of looking at things in one week, okay, we can get the organic one this week, next week, like, okay, this is nuts. Maybe we get the non-organic one. But definitely thinking a little bit about, um, about know, uh, yeah, just trying to lessen your overall total body burden, I think, of things like pesticides. And the Clean 15 and the Dirty Dozen can be a great way to do that. So for anyone who missed that podcast, it's put together by Environmental Working Group. It's just ewg.org, or you can just Google the Clean 15 and the Dirty Dozen. And it's basically the Clean 15 are the 15 top types of produce, so fruits and veggies that are sprayed the least in in terms of pesticides. And therefore you're gonna, yeah, have like the least amount of sort of pesticide Mm -hmm. residue on it. And then the Dirty Dozen are ones that are actually sprayed a bit more heavily or they have other concerns with them and therefore you should try and buy them organic if you can you can also wash everything with like kind of a fruit and veggie rinse and that can help too um but yeah that's a tool that i think that can be really helpful in terms of making decisions at the store what to get you know organic versus not um at the end of the day though even outside of that eating fruits and vegetables that are not organic is definitely better than not eating them at all So, you know, don't want to like make people scared of non-organic fruits and veggies. Like just if you can't afford the organic ones, just get the regular ones and eat them Mm. because that's still better than not eating them at all. Um, Those are kind of my main standpoints on the produce side of things. But then there's, of course, all the other stuff in the market, right? So um, two other things, I guess. One would be just the idea that processed foods are often more expensive just because they have been processed. So money has been put into their manufacturing. They weren't just like picked Mm. off the tree and put in the store. Um, And so my probably the best example I always use with that is when patients are going gluten free, gluten free products can be very expensive gluten free Mm. bread crackers, pasta, just general snacks, as soon as it's labeled gluten free, there's like a premium for it, it seems. And so Now, something to think about is that something like rice, which is naturally gluten-free, is actually quite inexpensive. And so to go gluten-free, you don't need to go out and buy all the different gluten-free products. You can eat gluten-free simply by eating more of the different like beans, legumes, grains, fruits, veggies, nuts, and seeds that Mm -hmm. are all naturally gluten-free to begin with. So that can sometimes save money just by buying less processed foods. And then one other thing, which it probably is not answering your question the way you're hoping to, but it's the idea of sort of like investing in your health to whatever amount is reasonable and acceptable to you. It may cost more to eat well now, but the idea is that you are investing in your health and that therefore it would cost less in the long term in terms of being able to prevent disease. So that's right. one thing I think that a lot of people are, are on board with, and that's something that they're comfortable with. Especially in the- areas yeah. where, where
0: healthcare coverage is is scant, you know, and, and they don't have, like, we're, we very much benefit in Canada by yeah. having, you know, publicly funded systems here. Yeah. But in some countries they don't, right? And so it's a serious consideration you have to make about uh, sort of that investing in yourself. I really love that.
1: Yeah. Yeah,
0: definitely. Yeah. yeah. Um, as we kind of wrap up here, uh, sort of maybe on something about more broader concerns. I mean, you've seen a lot of different kind of patients, um, you know, nutrition's kind of in your background just from your experiences and stuff. Are there, are there broader concerns about food and nutrition that you have? Um, just wanted to pick your brain on that.
1: Yeah. I think there's a few and and they are definitely broader sorts of ones. I think a lot of which came to, so I didn't really elaborate on my undergraduate degree. So I did a degree in nutritional science, but the faculty um, was not the faculty of science. So even though it was a bachelor of science, it was not in the faculty of science. It was in the faculty of, it was called agricultural sciences. Um, And while I was a student, they actually changed the name of that faculty to be the faculty of land and food systems. But either way, there were these series of courses that every student in that faculty had to take called the Agricultural Sciences courses. And it was in those courses that I first heard about Michael Pollan because his book, his book In Defense of Food, one of his many books, um, was required reading. And the idea was that they wanted everyone in this faculty who was learning about, about food, whether they were going to become a dietitian or a food scientist or a veterinarian, I think pre-vet stuff, some of it was in our faculty, people who are gonna become soil scientists and farmers, people who are, you know, getting degrees to do these sorts of things, um, you know, they they wanted us all to have this foundational sort of um, knowledge and to think about these bigger these bigger concerns in the world. And so, a lot of different things came up everything from food security for various communities can they access healthy foods or not? What sorts mm-hmm. of obstacles are in the way? Things like genetically modified food and sort of all the huge debates that can go on there. You know, is this something that we're sort of experimenting by consuming them and what are the health effects going to be years later? Or maybe not. Maybe they're feeding the world. Like, all these things came up, these big, big topics, right? Um, so, those sorts of things for sure just from sort of that background in undergrad. But I think a couple of things that are maybe a little bit more, um, (sighs) how should I say this? I mean, we were just talking a second ago about organic and how important that might be, right? right? Well, one topic I think that comes up a fair amount is the label organic and what does that mean anyways? And does that mean different things depending where you're buying your food from? So to give you an example, a lot of those big box stores now, Walmart or whatever else, they'll sell organic food, right? Well, so does the small health food store down the street and so does the farmer in the farmer's market. Is this all equal? And I don't know that I can say for sure because I can't speak to every single, you know, food manufacturer or farmer or whatnot, but Certainly I'd say as a general as a general theme you don't tend to see the same kind of quality with smaller farm with you know the big box stores compared to the smaller farmers and sometimes things that can come up would be for example with this organic certification it can be very expensive to get your farm certified organic and some small farmers just don't have the money to do that and sure. so what they will do then is essentially you know kind of grow their food or raise their food or whatever um, according to organic standards, but they won't pay for the certification. And so they can't advertise as organic. Mm-hmm, and so you'll ask them, mm-hmm. well, are your, is your food organic? And they'll say, well, not certified, no, but it's certainly pesticide-free and, and this and that, right? So I see a bit of a concern with that, that is because organic foods now are more, um, you know, popular and in, in these big, big box stores, is that going to crowd out the smaller farmers who are trying to mm. really really do a good thing in their community and, and whatnot but their food might be more expensive mm. Mm. yeah yeah i'd say that's a concern that probably most people who have been to a farmer's market could probably relate to if they're comparing that to what they're able to get at somewhere like cost for
0: sure i mean I, i've seen that when i go to the farmer's market i'll ask you know like oh is your stuff organic and they'll and they'll be very quick to say like you know uh well we're not certified organic but we don't use pesticides and all that sort of thing and and sometimes you can almost like you know this is sounds super anecdotal but you see a little bit of like uh, you know what i mean it's like frustrating for them that'd be really really tough like because um you know i would assume they take a lot of pride in their work and and uh, they want to produce really quality high quality products and and uh, because of a label but i also understand that like um you know hopefully anyways and i don't know enough about the certification but hopefully there's some sort of standard and consistency in that standard and um yeah but that's a that's a really really fair point
1: it's a big topic and like there are there are certain standards of course that they have to meet i think it's more in regard to um it's more in regard to like who we want to support right in terms of like a small farmer supporting like his livelihood and his family putting you know meals on his own plate that kind of thing and then also to a lot of people just and this yeah kind of anecdotal right we, i don't necessarily have any evidence to back it up but people do report and i've noticed myself that like the quality of something that you might get at a farmer's market like you'll get more heirloom varieties you'll get mm. um foods that maybe have been maybe the reason they taste so good is because they're grown in much more nutrient-rich soils nice. so maybe we're mm. actually getting mm. more nutrition from that i mean yeah i don't have the the numbers and the stats and all the different vitamins comparing costco to and uh, not to like same thing about Costco. Costco's great for a lot of things, but, um, but you know, comparing yeah, big big box stores to small farmers, like, but I think there's enough people sort of notice or maybe taste things or wonder. So, you, I mean, if you're just asking me, do I have concerns? Yeah, I feel a concerned about that, but I don't know that I have exact data to back it up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. So, okay, um, gonna move on to my. They're not really. I don't know these rapid fire questions. I really got to retool these because they are not just quick. Quick answer ones, but I think they're still. Especially not with me, right?
1: I talk forever. I'm sorry. <laughs>
0: <laughs> uh, dead or alive? Who are the five people that you would you'd share a meal with? And you can I don't know if these would be individually or together. But who are these five people?
1: Yeah, gee, I didn't really think whether it would be individually or together. That's a good question. Um, either way, uh, there's a number of people, and I almost find uh, when you really start thinking about it, it, becomes kind of hard to start <laughs> narrowing it down. Um, but yeah, I, I have a few, maybe I'll just start with the ones that I feel like really kind of stood out to me, um, the most. So number one, we've actually talked about him a couple of times tonight is Michael Pollan. I think Mm -hmm. he's simply amazing. I've looked up to him since, um, since I was an undergrad, like I mentioned, we had to read his book and I just went, wow. Um, and then I also heard him speak at a UBC alumni event a couple of years ago. It was around the time that his book, how to change your mind came out. and it was just awesome like seeing him speak and then afterward he was signing books so i went up and met him and i gave him my book and we had a little laugh together because i showed him how i had dog-eared nearly every page of it and i had just loved it so much and i i just (laughs) laughed and he laughed we had this little sort of connection there it was so nice but he's just i think he's brilliant i think he Mm -hmm has so much to share and he's just so thought provoking. I would absolutely love to have him around my dinner table. You know what? I would love to have him in my kitchen making the meal with me. Because (laughs) he, just with his, all of his mindset there with the food security and the nutrition and being involved with your food. I mean, gosh, he and I would probably just have a blast making that meal together, so.
0: I could see that for sure.
1: (laughs) You're probably not surprised about that one. (laughs) No, I'm not. (laughs) He's great, yeah. Um, another one that stands out to me, which I think has been really relevant in my life over the past number of years is a yoga instructor. Um, her name is Janet Stone and she's based out of San Francisco, California, and she's fantastic. She, so I first did her workshop in 2017 when I was doing my yoga teacher training in Vancouver. It was just part of the yoga teacher training. And she was there with us for a full weekend. And I just felt like she... Oh my gosh, it's hard to put words to it. It's more a feeling, but I felt so just like connected and and um, almost like she was creating this really really safe space to feel connected and to maybe heal and like whatever you needed. Almost it's mm-hmm. it's almost hard to hard to describe. But but I I did her workshop again um, at a very different time in my life. Several years later, it was actually just before COVID started uh, in twenty twenty and at two very very different times in my life and she just brought so much inspiration for self care and healing and connection and community and like self-love and all of that um things that i just i think she's a beautiful human being and um i yeah i just feel so blessed that i got to kind of have her as part of my life in those two very different times of my life and um whatever happens really with covid nice. but yeah the the next chance yeah. i um i have to do connect with her again because i did have a little conversation with her you know while, when she was up cause she's up here from the states and uh yeah i just wanted her to know like how special that experience was for me so i'd love to have her around my dinner table i think she would bring she also would like the some of her own um music which she uses in some of her you know, yoga workshops and whatnot. I would want her to bring the music and I would want her to maybe put a blessing on the food, that sort of thing. I think she would be such a Janet beautiful person. Janet Stone, part of if meal.
0: you're listening, we're going to tag you on Instagram if you got <laughs> that. So you listen to this podcast and you hit up Scarlet, So
1: <laughs> I wonder if she remembers me. I remember her. She's wonderful. <laughs> really wonderful woman. So yeah. So Michael Pollan, Janet Stone, um, there's a bunch of others. I thought of two others and I have to say both of them because they're kind of like a pair. You don't really get one without the other. I don't think, although maybe, maybe you do. Um, maybe you heard of them. They are two psychologists, a husband and wife. They're called the Gottmans, oh, yeah. yep. Julie Gottman and yep. John Gottman. A lot of people have heard of them. They um, are sort of famous for their work with relationships and couples, kind of like studying what works and what doesn't and that sort of thing. But but studying it from a way that I find is so fascinating from essentially like a research based sort of more scientific perspective mm-hmm. um, with the creation of what's called, they called it a, uh, a love lab. So mm-hmm. they had this, this sort of condo, they got some um, couples to come for the weekend and just live in the condo and just with well, their hidden cameras everywhere. So they got to see how they interacted. And this is how they interact, whether they're fighting or not just how they interact how they are together and they put all of this research together of couple after couple after couple and started noticing you know different behaviors and commonalities and things like that now the cool thing is they followed these couples and i believe it was at, it was at least 10 years later for sure and maybe they continued to follow them they followed those couples to see who was still together and who wasn't um, and concluding those who are still together, but maybe they were unhappy. And they noticed a lot of commonalities in regard to what's kind of toxic to a relationship and what's very nourishing to a relationship.
0: Mm. And
1: because of all of this work and research and observation, they feel that they now can predict um, whether a couple will succeed or not. And uh, it's just fascinating to me to study a relationship from that point of view. I think it's very different than a lot of other sort of relationship advice and work that's been done to date. And I, I think they're just kind of a really sort of fantastic couple and the type of work that they have done is is just is just awesome Incredible. I'd love to have yep. them yep. yeah yeah I'd love to yep. have them on my table <laughs> um and then I have like a handful of others it's kind of difficult to choose just one um I I mean I could tell you them all but it, it might take too long <laughs> so if I had to yeah if I had to just choose one I think I'm just going to um go back to my childhood here because I would so love to meet the creative genius behind Harry Potter which is JK Rowling I think that would add some lightheartedness sort of to maybe the whole, (laughs) the whole dinner, but more than anything, a storyteller. And as well, she, I think you, um, she went into different themes in her books, especially in the later stages of the book about like just sort of good and evil and and doing right and wrong versus, you know, that the right thing may not always be the easy thing. And like, she Mm has, she has some really quite mature themes in, in those books, which start out, I think for a lot of kids as, um, as children's books. So I think that would be pretty fantastic actually to have yeah. her around the dinner table as well. I'd, I'd, I think she'd balance out sort of the, the science and the yoga and whatever with sort of this creative storytelling, so.
0: That's a fantastic list. That would <laughs> be an awesome dinner collectively or individually, I think would be fantastic.
1: I would love it. <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah. Okay, last, last question, kind of yeah. one of those Oprah kind of questions, I guess, is uh, besides the circle of life, what do you know for sure?
1: Yeah, it's. I mean, it's. I think it's that sort of answer feels so simple to me that I almost then think, well, gee, is that a complete answer or not? Um, but in terms of what I know is for sure in life and things that are that are just that they they resonate with me or they are very important to me and that I feel like they kind of form the cornerstones of my life. Yeah, and maybe it just sounds a little cliche, but it's just my family and that's looking at like the family the parents that raised me um my sister who i was raised with and then as i get older now like choosing who i'm going to you know develop my family with Mm. um being part of someone else's family creating literally creating my own family all of that like that for me is so central i feel like it is if not the most important thing one of the very very most important things um, I'm very blessed in that I've, I was raised in a really positive environment with you know, wonderful parents and whatnot. I, I know not everyone has a, maybe necessarily the, the most positive experience, right? But for me, that was something that I think really, really shaped me. And so that's like, obviously I have career goals and various different aspirations, but a big, big one is to be able to sort of pass that along and pay it forward and sort of um, add to my family in in that way by, by choosing a a family to sort of connect with and be part of, and then also, yeah, kind of create more of my family. So that's kind of how I would answer that. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Scott I really want to thank you. Um, it was a fantastic conversation. I think the listeners, uh, or viewers are going to get a lot out of this. Um, if anyone wants to reach Scarlett, you can go to her website, which I'll put a link in the show notes for everyone. Mm-hmm. I'll put a, a bio in there if you want to read more about her as well. Um, maybe we'll have to do a follow-up episode because there's still so much more to talk about uh, at some point. Yeah, um, would love to hear people's comments to this uh, to this video. And uh, yeah, thank you again so much. Really appreciate you as a person, as a friend, mm-hmm. and. Happy to have you again on there. And thank you for listening to our show um, so earnestly as well. So appreciate your time. Oh, my
1: gosh. My pleasure, Pash. Thank you so much for having me. You're very easy to talk to. It's like I'm chatting with my friend, which I am. So <laughs> it's been, yeah, it's been a Thank you.
0: Thanks, Scarlett. See you later.